Hey everyone, you're listening to the 107 podcast where we get together every fortnight to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. We're doing something a little different over the next few episodes of the podcast. As part of our forthcoming release of something we're calling 107's Blueprint for Operations, we're embarking on a series of episodes where we hope to explore the components of this thing we've called Blueprint. We're going to try to capture and open source the very many components we think makes our team tick. This isn't DevOps, but DevOps is a part of it. It's not just about software development or even specifically for the web, but that's a part of it too. It's more about the things that we do as humans on our team as part of our daily routine to publish the work that we do and also the mutual respect and understanding of how we work together. It's also about the tools that we use to make this work happen. And I think of Blueprint as being comprised of a number of different components. For example, making sure we all have a shared understanding of what our branching strategy is within Git. Respecting that we have four different environments, live, stage, test, and dev. But it's also about relying on the backups that our system implements. And other non-development stuff like password management. So 10.7's Blueprint for Operations will eventually be published on GitHub as a repo, and hopefully other people will use it too if they want to. But we'll be supporting it, we'll be using it, and we'll be talking about it as well. One of these components, as I just mentioned, is password management. How we share passwords, what passwords we actually use, and how it affects our security, the security of the people we work with, our systems. It's an important part of Blueprint. We handle sensitive information on behalf of our clients and each other on a daily basis, and we want to be respectful and secure about how we do that. Our newest team member, Charlene, has helped us craft some wonderful copy for our website and for our proposals, and you've heard her on the podcast before. Now, apparently, she has some questionable password management habits. So in starting the Blueprint series, we're going to start discussing password management and how that forms a component in our daily work. We're having an intervention on password management. <laughs> Charlene, of course, is joining us. Charlene Yasheski. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And also, Tess Flynn is joining us. Hi. Hi, Tess. I'm glad we're having this discussion. I <laughs> I Feels think, like an intervention. <laughs> <laughs> All right, out with it. How do you keep your passwords? <laughs> that was going to be my first question. Exactly. How do you keep them? Okay. In, in my own defense, I think Here I thought go. I was smarter than I actually am. Like most people, um, I've got a Mac and my Mac saves a lot of my passwords for me. So I don't have to remember them. And the ones that it doesn't, Tess, you've already flogged me about this. I keep some in a Google Doc on the drive. I know. Oh. It's awful. I know. Oh. 
Oh, and it's on Google Drive too. That's even worse. Why is that? Okay, so well, tell okay. me why that's so awful. That's I have a, good... a password on it. Why is it? All right. So l- let's talk about password management techniques prior to the solution w- that I'm probably going to recommend. The first most common one is to write it down. There are plenty of memes around this, but you've heard, you've probably heard or might have a family member who might have an array of post-it notes around their monitor about different logins that they have. Uh, there was an internet meme that went around where there is a literal password book that says passwords on the cover that you write them down in. <laughs> and you can buy those books. You can, know, and you I, shouldn't. You shouldn't you buy those really books. Shouldn't. Um, I like stationery stores, and there's tons of them there with all my passwords. And you know, grandmas and grandpas are buying them for themselves. Don't do that. <laughs> I don't. Can I get some credit for not doing it in a book? <laughs> well, the the thing is that if it's in a physical book, then it's a different security problem that you have to deal yes. with. It's in a physical security problem. So now you have to worry about is your uh, is your working environment physically secure? So that's going to include, do you have locks? Do you have that book in a locked drawer? Do you have it just locked in your house? Can any of your guests just walk through and find your credit card number and your bank login and, and you know charge you for their time while you're visiting them? <laughs> or... Are, is any of this stuff visible from a window? Because it is possible to actually scrape that visually uh, using tele, uh, telescopic lenses, telephoto lenses, or telescopes in order to grab the passwords when they're just physically open. There was an excellent example of this where someone is on a rooftop with their laptop and they had their keys on the desk. And the keys, keys had attached to them a RSA secure number key, and you could see that from a telescope. Wow, I wouldn't have from another this. building a block away, four stories up. Yep, I, I that's a physical that. security problem. Yep, and wow, physical human beings have long since managed physical security. So in a lot of cases, we're a lot better at it because that's more intuitive. Now let's talk about computer centric means of storing passwords. The most common one is the passwords.txt approach, where you have a file on your computer that has all your passwords in it. And there's a few different problems with this. One, it's in a semi-ephemeral state, because if your laptop crashes, if your hard drive crashes, if you have a cat and they walk over your keyboard while the file is open and then you close it and it auto-saves, then all your passwords are gone. Those are all real big problems with the, phys- uh, with the local storage approach. This doesn't change if it's a text file, if it's an Excel doc, if it's a Word doc, if it's any file that's only solely stored on the hard drive. The problem is that there is a penetration surface that now exists where if your system is compromised, someone could scrape your file system, find that file, and they've got your passwords because they're all in plain text on your disk. And that's bad. Putting well, is this a case, I'm sorry to interrupt, of, so they're always warning you now that if you're on Wi-Fi at a coffee shop that doesn't have a secured router with a password that someone could just hop onto your computer and get things like that. Is that? 
Um, it's, more it's more complicated than that. Okay. I, think, um, I think the general rule with coffee shops is if there's no password, that means no encryption of your traffic. If there is a password, then there's some sort of encryption, which means that no one in theory could listen to what you're saying on the network, so to speak. There's no password, there's no encryption. Um, so anyone could be So that's why you talked, uh, Yvonne, you talked me into getting um, a, a VPN to protect Yes. Mm -hmm. that. But that's a whole that's other a topic. That's a different discussion, but yes, yeah. that's a good start. Well done. Yeah. I did something, yeah. <laughs> so the third case, and this is the case that we're seeing a lot with people uh, my age and your age, Charlene, is that people will store their passwords in a text file in the equivalent of a file on a cloud hosting provider like Google Drive or Office 365. This is actually worse. It is. And the reason why it's worse is because, <laughs> because instead of having to get into your system and scrape your file system, of which your operating system has several different layers of protection, you are now in an inherently foreign and hostile medium that is under constant attack because everybody knows what the URL to Google Drive is. And if... You, if there's a slip up in Google's configuration or you mistakenly share a directory or the file itself in your Google Drive, you're compromised. And there's no way to walk that back. Even if I set a password to, this, to the document? It doesn't matter. They'll be able to find a way around it. Okay. Yeah, the, the password is, um, it makes you feel better, but it's not it a protector of that file. In okay. fact, as Tess was alluding to, your local system is actually harder to penetrate than Google Drive is because it's physically in your presence. You can switch it off and you right. can see it. Someone needs usually physical access to it to get to that file. And we've had more, uh, more years behind that kind of security than the kind that would be for an online service like just putting it in Google Drive. And Google Drive does not assume that the files contain sensitive information by default. And I did not is, know that. And See, that is the problem. In my defense, too, I, I guess I had a false sense of security thinking that well, Google is like the behemoth of the world. They have to be somewhat secure. Uh, well, it's, but it's reasonably secure, but you also have to remember that anything that you store on there, that's in a format that you can read without any additional layers of technology on top of it, so can they. And so can anyone who gets to that file. Or right breaches now, her login. You might, yeah. What's that, Tess? Or breaches her login. Right. That's right. So if you share that file with anyone or you have your Gmail account compromised, they will have access to that file as well. Hold on a second. If my Gmail account is compromised, they will have access to my Google Drive? Right. It's the same login. It's the same Oh, login. duh. Yes. Well, I feel stupid now. And I'm usually pretty smart about these things, but apparently I'm not. And you know what else I end up thinking too is, our, you know, for years it was like Macs aren't hackable, right? It was like, <laughs> I know, I know. That's not really true. And I know, but never, they're less It never was true than, as a matter of fact. They're less hackable than Windows, aren't they? Um, well, let me put it this way. If you actually go to a big tech security conference, you never see a Mac. People who work in the, uh, the information security business 
don't use Macs. Well, this is all very There's important. a reason for that. <laughs> they tend to use Windows systems. There's more technology, there's more tooling around information technology security on, in the Windows world. Mac OS and Apple in general likes to use one particular tactic for security above all else, which is obscurity. Well, and the problem is security through obscurity is not security. It's a nice tactic to sell it. And we've been seeing in the last six months, there have been major, major breaches of Mac OS that go back seven years of vulnerability that they're only now fixing. Well, that's so Mac OS has never been unhackable. There is no unhackable operating system. Now that we know you use one master Google Doc to store no, all not, of your past... I didn't say all, I said some. Some. Okay, but so you're storing <laughs> your any most... hackers listening right now, go store all of them. <laughs> well, let's the talk other about... The is that it's also undeletable off of Google Drive. <gasps> so, so even if I take them down now, I'm still screwed. Yeah, because they're screwed. Per, they're persistently stored in Google's cloud even after deletion within the continental United States because they can do that. No one yeah. told me that. You can't mm-hmm. assume that when Facebook or Google or a behemoth says that they've deleted something, that they've actually deleted it. I think you have to assume that they just flipped a flag that makes it look like it's deleted to us. This is why GDPR <laughs> exists because. A lot of organizations did not delete things, and they had to actually sue and make law to force their hand to link them delete things. And this is why GDPR was written so broadly and why any company that's supporting business from the EU now supports it. And some companies have outright said, fine, we're just not going to do any business in the EU. And you could tell what kind of scruples they have. Exactly. So Google Doc storage bad, right? What's what's the answer? What should we be doing? I mean, well, hold, on, hold on a second. Hold on. Oh, a second. okay. Um, what about the flip side? Like I said, most of my passwords I let my computer store, and why is that bad? When you say I let my computer store, that is kind of generic, and it depends on the particular mechanism that is being used to store it. Because there are multiple operating system level password managers. Um, OS 10 has Keychain, which is the operating system level password management system. And that's reasonably secure because it's locally stored. I do not believe that it's backed up to iCloud. I could be wrong about that. And I believe it is also locally encrypted. The Keychain keychain test just interject. Um, You can check a box and have it backed up, not backed up to the to iCloud, but shared amongst all your devices, in which case I think you have to assume it's stored in the cloud. Oh, that's stupid. <laughs> because, yeah, when I just updated my OS on the, my new computer, I noticed that something I'd entered on my hard drive as a password showed up on my phone that I know I hadn't entered on my phone. So, yeah, that's... So, yeah, that's backed up to iCloud. That's not cool. No, and it's billed as a convenience service, but it's also one of those, it works so well and I don't have to think about it. Exactly. You don't have to think about it. Why, how are you vulnerable then? <laughs> what, what, what don't you know can hurt you a lot when it comes to security? I think it has to be said, Charlene, all of the usernames and passwords you have in your Google Drive right now in that doc, mm-hmm. you are going to need to change all of them. 
Yes. Like that's, I just want to make sure we actually say that. Yes. Agreed. At least the passwords, usernames are a little bit less of a thing to change, actually. They can be publicly known entities. And at, at that point, they might as well be considered public information. Thank you for clearing that. I did mean passwords. Well, I'll be out the rest of the day then, so cancel my meetings. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what should I be doing after I, after I change all of my passwords, tests? What should I do? You should probably be using a password manager. And the password manager is going to be a dedicated piece of software which is intentionally designed to store secure and compromising information like logins, uh, bank numbers, credit card information. Most of them are intended for password management only, but they also store other stuff. And the reason why these are solutions to recommend is that they organize it fairly well. They have a very good focus on integrating with the operating systems and devices that you use so that it becomes easier to use they are all encrypted by default, and they all have a security focus by design, which is something that you can't say for, say, Google Drive. And there's a number of different password managers you could use. There's OnePass, there's LastPass. I think TunnelBear has Remember, uh, which is a new one. Um, there's Bitwarden. Uh, that I also like, Bitwarden. I don't know if you've heard of it before, Tess, but it's open source and a service and works much like 1Password and LastPass are. And all of these fall under the category of a service. So this is a password management service. Now, there is also local password managers, which are dedicated to only store passwords on the local file system. And these are going to be things like KeePass, and uh, there's another one that's a Unix-centric one that's just called Pass because Unix. <laughs> <laughs> and those are those tend to be open source completely, and they do pretty much the same thing. They organize and manage passwords, but they also do one other thing, which is perhaps the best thing you can do with passwords. It generates them. And the oh, best, no. most secure password is the one you can't remember. Because not even you know what it is. <laughs> so it's all the, that big um, bag of random letters and numbers, right? And symbols, yeah. And characters. Something. The reason why that's the best strategy to go with is because you're no longer sharing passwords, which is a common thing that human beings like doing because human beings only have a limited memory capacity and they tend to like using the same password over and over and over again on multiple services. And by the time you get to about seven different ones, you can't remember the difference between them. And it gets way too complicated to remember. And that's where these password managers step in. They allow you to remember just the site or the name of a thing and then match that to whatever random password you generated for it. And this has another knock-on effect. If the service that you're using that login on is compromised and your password is compromised, none of your other accounts are compromised because none of your other accounts have the same password. And you just have to invalidate one instead of everything or a lot of things 
it, I think what you're saying it is it reduces the chance um, your if, if, uh, vector surface, your attack surface. Um, and the other thing that random passwords do, um, or at least password generators do, is it allows you to create a password that's very long. So if you're not going to be remembering that password, there's no reason why it has to be eight characters or 10 characters or 15 characters. You can set that to be 32 characters or 64 ca uh, characters. And the longer a password is that you don't have to remember, if someone is going to try to break into your account with uh, some sort of brute force attack, the longer the character, the longer the number of characters in your password, the longer they have to spend in computing cycles to try to break that password. And it's exponential. Every time you add another character to that length, the computing time goes up, not by one or two. It goes up more than that. Well, that was going to be my next question is, so if someone breaks into, let's say I do one pass, because I know you've mentioned that before, Yvonne. And so then if someone breaks into my one pass account, they will have all my passwords. So that is true. So if you use a password manager, the single point of failure or the single point of entry is that one password that you have to remember to get into the password manager. Because the password manager will use that one password not just to allow you access to your own things, but also to either salt or encrypt the data that you're storing so that in theory, they aren't able to get to that information either. And neither will anyone if they get the, the storage medium or the files where all of that information is stored, they will still need your password to get in there. And so a company like 1Password will do everything it can to get you to create a master password, uh, a master phrase that is very long, that only you will likely be able to remember um, and that won't be easily cracked. And then, it, and then it does things like have you write them down, write that password down in an emergency backup piece of paper and then take it to the bank into your safe deposit box or fold it and put it somewhere else that's secure so that if you do happen to uh, forget your master password, there's a method to recover it. If you don't have that backup, you are literally screwed because you won't be able to get into your passwords. I'm surprised they don't do something like a multi-factor authentication. They do? They do? They do. Most of these services also support multi-factor authentication. Should we talk about what multi-factor authentication is? <laughs> we definitely should do that as well. That's another another means to actually add. Funny how I know this stuff, yet I kept my passwords in a Google Doc, isn't it? <laughs> you know, the first step is to um, admitting that you have a problem. <laughs> I think this intervention is going well. <laughs> I'm sufficiently shamed. <laughs> Multi-factor, tell us, Tess. So multi-factor security is a mechanism by which you supply generally one key, which is you know, a password of some sort, and that's one that you, that you define, that you create, and in the case for a, a password manager's master password is usually the one that you remember. And that's okay, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's 
it's secure by itself. Because the problem is that if you actually try login, if you actually try, uh, if someone tries to breach your password, all they have to do is breach your password. Multi-factor security adds an additional layer on top of that. Usually, traditionally, it's taken the form of something that attaches to a keychain that has a random rolling series of numbers on it. But more recently, it's been smartphone apps and even USB sticks that generate these with no physical outward sign of what's going on with them. And the idea is that these numbers are generated by a randomized algorithm. That randomized algorithm is going to be specifically designed to be hard to track what each number is generated sequentially. And also it's going to change on a regular time basis that is predictable so that one side knows what the seed is for your multi-factor security. You know what you're, you have your, the current number. Both sides can figure out what that deterministic multi-factor number is at the same time. And if that matches, then they can go, uh, then you can log into your account. However, the problem is that if a third party does, you know, does this, they don't have your multi-factor key. And they'll get a hard stop because there's no way for them, even if they literally have your password, to break into your account because they still need the multi-factor key, which they can't predict without having physical access to one of these key devices or knowing what the seed code is and the algorithm behind it, which tend to be a very tightly guarded secret and has a very minimum attack surface that open, only happens when you're signing up for multi-factor security in the first place. What are your feelings about biometrics, like, you know, my, my fingerprint for uh, multi-factor authentication? There's the story of a dad who got his phone bill back and found he was charged $600 in a game. It turns out he had a phone with a fingerprint reader. And his kids figured out that if I want to buy something on the phone, I just have to go over to dad when he's sleeping oh, no. and touch the, uh, his fingerprint on the reader. This is why biometrics, in my opinion, is not really worth anything. <laughs> I, I think that it's kind of a fad. And mostly because trying to get that kind of information is very easily spoofed. We leave it everywhere, more than passwords. And it sounds like a fancy sci-fi thing because it's been profited in so many sci-fi works, and it's all garbage. And we don't have retinal I would agree scans with that. yet. I'm sorry. I, what was that? I said we don't have retinal scans yet. Those so, are also garbage. Also garbage. Really? Yes, oh, I, would, yes. I, would, I would. Because that retinal, uh, retinal patterns actually change uh, over time with age, health conditions, uh, <laughs> what, point, uh, what point in the month you are in, hormone cycles, if you're fed, if you're hungry, all of these things fat and change, change those patterns. Tess, is there anything you don't know? I know too much <laughs> of this garbage because I have no life. <laughs> so the also, way I've been watching sci-fi since I was a kid and have a very practical engineering mindset and... My dreams have been crushed so many times. Oh, Tess. <laughs> oh, dear. 
So the way I think about fingerprints and iPhone 10 face recognition. Um, I do not let it recognize my face. Isn't it funny? Like well, I, I have all of these concerns about privacy, so I don't have face recognition on and I don't like using the thumbprint for things, but yet I did that with the passwords. It just makes no sense. <laughs> no, it doesn't. What, <laughs> what I was, what I was going to say was, um, I almost feel like the biometric thing is being used the wrong way around. We're using a fingerprint or a face print to to unlock a phone or a device, and we're using that as the password. Where in actual fact, those metrics are measurements of our identity. Those should really be the username, not the yeah. password. Ooh, that's a great you idea. Can't, you can't right. change, for example, your fingerprint on purpose, right? Yes. So even if your well, password, maybe not you, um, <laughs> not me, but some. Okay, so most um, people. Let's, let's not go there. Right. Yeah, so most people can't. But if my fingerprint was compromised and it and it is my password, then presumably I can't change it, and so now it's always compromised. But if it's an identifier of who I am, it's the ID. It's not the mechanism to enter the information about my id which is kind of how the police have always used it right yeah you see detectives dusting fingerprints yeah that's my id why did we change switching to using it as a password mm, that's a really good point because of course i'm thinking about dna now though it's not going to be long before we have like dna it's, that's my password and that's my identifier no one's seen Gattaca, have they? I have I... seen Gattaca. Skin cells. <laughs> There's no way to avoid skin and hair cell loss. That's my takeaway. <laughs> exactly. That's why people okay. are stupid. And I also watch a lot of forensic file shows. And I'm just like, people are so dumb. It's like, you can't avoid leaving your DNA. You just can't. We've determined that we should be using password managers. And password management is one of the components of Blueprint. Like I said earlier today... We use one password at 10.7. One password is wonderful for a various number of reasons. Um, it allows us to compartmentalize passwords by client and by project. It allows us to take those vaults that have those compartmentalized passwords and usernames and share them with our clients where they can add passwords or change passwords. It allows us to share that information internally uh, with developers and with business folk. And it allows us to document that knowledge in some way uh, online and as part of our other processes. I wonder if we shouldn't talk a little bit about good password habits. You're now using a password manager and you're letting the password manager uh, generate all of these new passwords for you. What should your new behaviors look like that might be different from behaviors in the past? In the days of old, you would use one password for more than one account, right? You really shouldn't do that. You really shouldn't have the same password for your email as you do for your bank account, as you do for your mortgage payment, as you do for your computer, for example. So the first habit you should change is diversifying your passwords. And the first thing you should check is, do I have the same password for my email as I do for any one or more of my bank accounts? And if I do... I should change those 
first, likely your email password. Because if someone breaks into your email, they can reset any of your bank account passwords. So that's probably the first thing you should change. But is that moot if I'm having um, a password manager generate all my random passwords though? That is, that is I guess, that is definitely moot. Um, I, think, I think though it's a continuum because uh, my guess is that people who uh, haven't had best practices around their passwords likely aren't going to suddenly become best practices implementers. And they will likely still want to hold True. on to some passwords that they can still type in. Like baby their steps. So baby steps. Yeah, baby steps. Okay, so number one is make sure that you don't have any of the same passwords for anywhere. your things anywhere. Exactly. Well, but if that is your baby step, then how do you recommend people saving those somewhere? Just on Still, a local? I mean, the first step is to get a password manager. Okay. And then start changing all the passwords that you have. Perhaps the ones that are most vulnerable first, like if you happen to put them on a Post-it note or maybe a Google Doc. Based on that, though, it sounds like the Post-it is a hell of a lot safer. <laughs> <laughs> how long it'll be before we all have our own like hardware uh personal password generator that's just hooked into something you know like you said on a keychain like most of the time it's just you know corporations that pass those out i've done gigs where they've given me you know the random password generator keychain thing wonder how long it'll be before we all have those i think we can have all those we can do that now you have a device in your pocket you install one password and boom you have that those random password generators, those, they would generate something new like every half hour. Now, these don't do that though, right? Well, or do they, they? kind of do, but they don't, that's not what they're called. So it's 1Password is the name of the app. And there's LastPass. Those are different. So okay. just want to make sure we get those names right. But the 1Password app and service you install on your computer and also on your phone. And in both locations, you can use the tool, the app, to generate a password, a 64-character password, a 32-character password, and then you would save it with your username in the app. And so the app would store that newly generated random password, and then you would physically have to go to the website where you now created this new password for and log into the service and go to the change password screen and then change the password to that randomly generated password that you just created in the app. But okay. then there's also the ability for the password generator to generate this token that Tess was talking about earlier that changes every 30 seconds that you can use in the multi-factor login process, yeah. right? This is that six-digit character. In the past, that used to be on a keychain. It still exists on keychains, but your password manager can do that for you now as well. Okay. I would actually recommend not doing that. Like my, my feeling for having that token in the same place as your password manager is actually that they shouldn't be in the same location. Agreed. Because very often to access some service, you need that extra token and if your password manager has been compromised and your token is being generated by your password manager, then there's no use having that multi-factor. 
um, at all because they can just get the token out of the password generate out of the password manager. Um, so my recommendation is to actually store the token generation in a different tool. I would likely recommend Authy, A-U-T-H-Y. You can also use Google's token manager. I think it's I think it's called Google. Google Authenticator. Google Authenticator. That's right. Yes. There's also um, YubiKey, which is a physical solution. What is it? YubiKey. Y-U-B-I key. Do we think we have a series of things you know that you're going to do after we immediately after we get off the recording of this podcast, Charlene? Yes. Number one is I'm going to go to the Google Doc, and since deleting it does nothing, I'm going to make a list of all the passwords that I had in there and go and immediately change them. And then I'm going to go get one password and do everything that you said in the show to get all my passwords completely random. So I, I'm not, I'm not tempted to put them in a Google doc. I love it. And you know what? We're going to make it easy what? for you with one password. We're just going to add you as a user to the 10, seven account Yay. Um, because you know, you should have access to some of the credentials we have, some Thank of the you. projects that you're working on. And you can get started like that. That'll hopefully be even easier. You've told me what I should do with my personal passwords, but you know we need to talk about what people should do in a business setting. Can I use my same personal password for my work passwords or should there be a separate app for that? There's a few different things. Um, my personal preference is to always, always have a strict separation between what are your personal passwords should be in one application and what are the business ones should be in another application. If you're a freelancer, this gets a little muddy because they can be the same in some cases. Um, but if you are working for another company as a full-time employee, uh, it's best if they mandate their password manager that's attached to your business uh, your business email account. And then you have one that's separate that's yours. And the reason why is, one, it's practical because if you quit jobs or change jobs or something else happens, you still have your passwords. You don't need to change anything. Um, on the other hand, some businesses can actually have administrative access to personal vaults, and that means they can decrypt them. So you've got to be really careful about that sort of thing as well. Can you explain vaults? Um, Yvonne mentioned that before. What, what does that mean? That's what 1Password calls what's effectively a folder. <laughs> it's a means of, of organizing the password content. So if you imagine that each unique piece of information can be a password inside of a password manager, those usually get organized into either a series of labels or a series of folders or one password calls them vaults because they want to be fancy. It's a, it's still the same thing. It's a folder. So does that also mean um, as a company, they will set up a vault for each client. So then as a new person comes on um, that vault is then just shared with the new employee. Like these are all the passwords for these clients things. It depends on, on the scale of the organization. I think that gets into a completely different uh, human management question, because if you have lots and lots and lots of passwords, you might only give 
access into a department. They might have their own standard vault. If they work with a lot of clients, that business might create multiple vaults per client. It's, it depends. But an important thing to note is that these vaults, these folders, also tend to be the unit of sharing in password managers. So what happens usually is if you have a client which needs to send you a password for a system, you don't want them to email it to you, and you don't want them to uh, say it over the phone and then say, was that an asterisk or not, (laughs) five or six times. Um, Instead, it's better to share them access to a particular vault slash folder, and then they can input the data directly. And then they only have a small piece of access in order to do what they need to do. Well, you have control over everything that's in that vault slash folder, as well as everything else that's in your account. Great. Charlene, thank you so much for allowing us to give you a hard time about passwords. (laughs) It's well-deserved, sounds like. (laughs) You've been listening to the 107 podcast. Find us online at 107.com slash podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. And keep an eye out for the next episode of this Blueprint series. Until then, this is Ivan Stegich. Thanks for listening.